Welcome to PodClass with Lara Axtell. As an experienced educator, Lara explores the latest educational research and practical solutions from experts, educators, and parents with the goal of increasing knowledge, improving student outcomes, and creating connections. PodClass is brought to you by Reading Horizons, whose mission is to empower teachers by providing training and tools needed to implement dynamic structured literacy instruction in the classroom. Visit readinghorizons.com to learn more. And now, PodClass with your host, Laura Axtell. We're so glad that you've joined us for this episode of PodClass, and I hope you'll find today's conversation as interesting as I did. I'm your host, Laura Axtell, and one of our goals for this podcast is to hear from educators and parents, as well as experts on a range of topics. Wendy Bertnall, our guest today, is both an educator and a parent, and her mission is to help adults understand how sensory differences impact children and how we can help. I'm going to ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself, Wendy, and what you do and how you came to do it. Absolutely. First of all, thanks for having me on, Laura. This is so fun to speak to different audiences and really help parents understand their kids. That's my biggest mission in anything that I do. My background was that I have my bachelor's degree in child development and my master's degree in special education. So I was one of those parents that I now just cringe at where I entered parenting thinking I could do it all. Like, I just thought that I knew everything, all of my research, all of everything that I did in school really was just going to prepare me to be the best mom ever. And with my first son, that actually was the case. Things were pretty easy. They were pretty smooth. He was so easygoing. And then I had my second son and everything flipped upside down. And it was like we were dealing with meltdowns and tantrums and I could not figure out why. So fast forward three and a half years later, I realized it was due to the inability to regulate his sensory system. He doesn't have a diagnosis. He doesn't have autism. And so that started a five-year journey of helping every single parent understand how sensory affects all of us on a daily basis when it comes to learning, when it comes to behavior, when it comes to emotional regulation. All of us deal with it. And so it's such a powerful tool to be able to give people so that they can really understand and support their kids on a deeper level. So it's interesting that you're coming at this work from both as an educator and as a parent, which puts you in a really unique position. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I think that's why a lot of the work that I do is just so incredibly simple. And I go for really tangible and doable strategies. It's not a five-step method that you have to do perfectly every time, but it's more like, what can a stressed out, sleep deprived mom do on a daily basis to really support their child? And that's, I think that's what we all need. And uh, let's mention your podcast and your website and those kinds of things so people can find those resources. Absolutely. Yeah. My podcast is called the Exceptional Parenting Podcast, where I help parents who have children who seem to be the exception to every rule. <laughs> and my website is theexceptionalparentingpodcast.com. I have a couple of programs where I teach parents how to understand and address really challenging behavior. Um, and I call it challenging behavior because there's not always a perfect mold for it. It's not always kids with autism or ODD or dyslexia or anything like that. It's just certain behaviors can be really challenging and there's key principles to all of those. And so that's what I love doing inside my group program. And you can find me on Instagram at Wendy Bertnall. Great. Could you start by talking a little bit about what are sensory differences? 
Well, we all know that we have a sensory system. And from what most of us have been taught, we all know we have five senses. Reality is they've discovered nine senses, but seven of them are the most commonly researched and ones that I teach in my program, the ones that affect kids most often. So when I say that there's a child who has sensory differences, what I mean is that their senses aren't always regulated. So they're either getting too much of something or not enough of something. And that goes for visual stimulation. Maybe they can only handle a little bit of light or they can only handle so many posters on the wall before they just get overwhelmed. Maybe it's noise. A lot of moms have a sensory preference that doesn't allow their ears to handle very much noise. And so by the end of the day, our ears are all tapped out and we end up yelling or we end up getting really stressed out. So sensory differences is a term that I just use to describe any kind of fluctuation in what could be considered baseline for our senses. And anything that's off baseline, whether it's too much or not enough stimulation, is going to put us into a place where we're feeling frustrated, overwhelmed, reactive, usually fight or flight, things like that. And that's where we see a lot of behavior. And could you talk a little bit about specifics in terms of our children born with sensory differences? Yeah, because we all have a sensory system, we all have what I call sensory preferences. And it's just like taste preferences, right? And a lot of our taste preferences are what we're born with, but some of them we kind of grow into. Sensory can change and it doesn't always change unless we address it head on. So a lot of people are probably listening here thinking, oh, well, my child doesn't have autism or sensory processing disorder or whatever, but all of us have sensory preferences and those preferences are going to affect us on a daily basis. And yeah, there are things that we were born with. Um, a lot of us just kind of skirt past them, not really understanding how it affects us. But once we have the terms and we have a greater understanding of how it affects us, we go back and we think, oh my gosh, I totally get that. Like there was a mom that I was talking to who was a friend of mine. And I like to explain it by saying that we all have a series of seven cups. So just imagine we all have seven cups. Some of these cups are going to be massive, like the big gulp, massive cups. Some of them are going to be super small, like a shot glass. And the size of our cup is going to determine how much stimulation we can take in in that area. So let's say, for example, like my friend, she has a really small hearing cup. So she can only handle a little bit of auditory stimulation or noise before her sensory system just explodes. Now, again, she doesn't have autism. She doesn't have any diagnosis. She's just a quote unquote normal person. But she told me one time, she said, Wendy, I feel so bad because even when my kids are just playing and giggling and having fun, whenever they get too loud, I lose it and I yell at them. She says, I've always felt like a horrible mom. So we talked about that a little bit more. And I said, don't worry about it. First of all, you're not a horrible mom. Second of all, it just means that you have a small hearing cup and all you need to do is be aware of it. And so then she came back to me a week or two later and she said, Wendy, it's amazing. When my kids start getting loud, I can feel myself getting tense instead of yelling at them or feeling like a horrible mom or feeling like I just need to be more patient, I know that I can just go into the other room or put some earbuds in or have some calming music on and my hearing cup doesn't overflow. So then I don't yell. And it's like reverse engineering these reactions that we're constantly used to engaging in so that we can all function a little bit better. So this doesn't apply just to children. It also applies to parents and teachers, I would think. Absolutely. 100%. 
It's interesting because I think of teachers who really seem to be less tolerant of things that I think, why would that bother them, you know? And maybe that has to do with their sensory differences. Absolutely. Just like my husband, it's so interesting. He can't handle um, anybody touching his skin really softly. And especially if you touch his hair really softly, it just sets him off. He has a very small tactile cup. Um, and again, no diagnosis, just it's his preference. And so the kids know if they really want to get on dad's nerves, they go and touch his hair. Um, and it's just his reaction to his sensory preference. Whereas if they, if they want to sit by him and they want to have cuddles, they know that it has, they have to touch him really firm and really deep on his arms or whatever. Um, and that won't set him off. So just understanding those things helps us know how to relate to people and how to help regulate our own emotions so they're not just feeling like we're flying off the handle. Same goes for kids. Is this different than like a sensory processing disorder? So sensory processing disorder would be when the sensory preferences interfere with daily life in a way that is difficult for them to manage. So it's more like a spectrum of how do our sensory preferences affect us on a daily basis. If it's just a little bit like my friend and like my husband, you know, where it's certain things will set them off, but they know how to come back from that, not a big deal, right? But if it's all the time where a child can't learn, they can't sit in the classroom, they're being set off all the time, that's when it's considered sensory processing disorder. And that's when it's great to get the help of an occupational therapist or something like that. This is all related to the um, central nervous system? Definitely. So many children on the autism spectrum also have those sensory issues. Is that because it's the same part of the system that's being affected, regardless of whether you have that diagnosis or not? You know, that's an interesting question and one that I don't know the answer to. I do know that a lot of children who have autism also tend to have sensory processing disorder. Same with a lot of children with Down syndrome, they tend to have sensory processing disorder. But not all children with sensory processing disorder have autism. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It does sound like some, like you said, on a spectrum where it's more of a sensory preference, but it doesn't really interfere with daily life as opposed to when it becomes um, an impairment or really causes distress, those kinds of things. Absolutely. Yeah. You said, you know, your child wasn't diagnosed. Certainly your husband wasn't diagnosed. So what are the characteristics? How would a parent know if their child is experiencing either sensory preferences or sensory processing disorder? I think a lot of parents suspect something and like, so my son doesn't have a diagnosis, but he also, so he's not severe enough to have sensory processing disorder, but he's also a little more involved than what we would call a typically developing child. And I hate using the word typical, but a child who develops without a lot of the difficulties, he's more intense than that. So he's somewhere in the middle of that spectrum, but parents can know pretty easily because if they're seeing weird, quirky behaviors that just they don't get, like maybe the child is always running around like a crazy kid or seems to be too aggressive and really not meaning to be aggressive, not doing it in a, a malintentioned way, um, that would be a sign of possible sensory processing disorder, definitely sensory preferences. A child who has picky eating preferences, only, you know, might gag on certain foods, hate certain smells can't handle certain textures or certain tastes that could, that's definitely sensory preferences, maybe sensory processing disorder. A kid who's freaking out at any unexpected sounds or really loud sounds where they're covering their ears a lot. Um, a kid who's really fed off or 
triggered by unexpected touch or maybe the kid who takes 30 minutes to get dressed in the morning, which sounds pretty extreme, but for parents of kids who are doing this, it's like a daily thing because their body literally cannot handle the feel of certain clothing on them. So just knowing that they're having to get dressed takes forever because it's such a process. They're just constantly resisting. That's so interesting because I know several kids that where the parents have talked about, especially clothing, like textures on clothing has to be super soft or they hate the feel of socks or pants have to fit just right. Um, like if there's any type of elastic or things in them, but they're not on the spectrum. And so that's kind of that one thing that really bugs them, but they don't seem to have any other characteristics. Absolutely. And that's how it can be for all of us, right? Like maybe that child has normal size cups or even big cups in other areas, but they have a small tactile cup or small touch cup, which makes them really sensitive to how things feel on their body. So the way I like to approach it is that every single person can benefit from understanding sensory, from learning more about it. Because the more we learn, the more we can support it, right? We're not just addressing it like, oh my gosh, my kid is the biggest brat and they're so particular about their clothes and they just need to learn to get over it. Instead of taking that approach, it's, it comes from a more intentional and educated approach and saying, okay, my child's body prefers these things. How can I support that while still helping them to grow to do all of these other things? So everybody can benefit from understanding sensory, but not everybody needs to go to occupational therapy. Right. What is helpful for parents to know about parenting a child with sensory differences, regardless of where they are on the spectrum? Yeah, so what I like to recommend is that I have a free resource that any parent can grab. We'll put the link on the show notes or the page that you guys have this on. And it goes over all of the senses, what they look like when there's a large cup, when there's a small cup. And so the parents can start to see where themselves and their kids fall in this spectrum of sensory processing. And it's just so empowering. I have yet to meet a person who was sad about learning about sensory. It has definitely impacted and empowered so many parents to start avoiding a lot of the meltdowns or the tantrums or the freakout sessions or the power struggles that can come from trying to push your child through it or trying to treat it as just behavior. Well, and not understanding what's causing it. That must be a huge revelation. Absolutely. Because like you were saying, you know, that kid who is really particular about his socks or the way that his clothes fit, in a lot of our minds, it's like, kid, just get over it. Like, I never had these problems. I don't understand why you're so particular. Or maybe if I were just more strict and didn't give him so many options, maybe he wouldn't be so particular. And it's easy to get down on ourselves or hard on our kids for things that we don't understand. But when we have that understanding, it's so much easier to address it for what it is and support it and help them work through it. So do you find that what works for supporting those kids at home is, first of all, just to be aware of, you know, what sensory uh, differences they may have or sensory preferences, and then to find ways to kind of accommodate around that. So like the parent who said, instead of yelling, I'm just going to listen to music or wear earbuds or something like that. And the same kinds of things for your kids, just finding what works for them. Absolutely. And a lot of parents get nervous about this part because then they think, oh, are we just being super passive and letting our kids dictate everything that they do? Because not everybody is going to walk on eggshells for them. And it's really not that. It's more of just understanding how their body works and providing opportunities to function to their best ability within those preferences. For the things where they're more sensitive, 
we either limit their exposure to those. For example, my oldest son, he gets migraines if he's in the sun for too long. He has a really small visual cup. Now, are we pacifying him or spoiling him by giving a hat and sunglasses to him every time we go out? Well, I don't think so. In my mind, it's supporting his body. Um, for a child who's a picky eater, it's a little bit different. The approach that we would use would be slightly different, but it's definitely not a forceful approach where they're just going to learn their lesson or they're just going to figure it out. It's definitely full of support and empowerment and education, just like you said. Because it's not something that the child can control either, really. Absolutely. After a short break, we're going to continue this discussion. Podcast is brought to you by Reading Horizons, the creator of a structured literacy program for beginning readers, struggling readers, and English language learners of all ages. By combining data-driven software with teacher-led instruction, students receive a targeted reading support that leads to rapid improvement. Visit readinghorizons.com slash trial for 14 days of free access to our software. The other thing is that, you know, most teachers would say that they've had like little or no training on even sensory processing, much less sensory issues that are not really diagnosable. What do you think teachers need to know? Because they have those students in classrooms all the time. And the, you know, the fire alarm goes off. So if they're, you know, if their auditory cup is really small or, you know, something shifts in the schedule and they have to, um, you know, everything gets switched around. What, what do teachers need to know about this, do you think? That is a really great question. And we, so I have, with an occupational therapist, we created a program called Sensory Solutions where you can create solutions for your child to support their sensory preferences throughout the day. And we've had so many teachers take that and say, oh my gosh, this helps me so much. Because then I think the power in this is that they see past the behavior and to the actual root of what's causing it. And so I think first, teachers just need to know the general understanding of the sensory system. And second is how to prepare children to start under, understanding that for themselves. And it sounds like a long process, but really kids can start to verbalize, my, my ears don't like this. Um, my body doesn't like being touched like that. My, you know, I prefer tight hugs. Kids can start to verbalize those things as soon as they can speak those words and as soon as those words are given to them. So empowering teachers to then be able to give those words to the kids, it helps the teachers so much because then the kids are advocating for themselves and saying, hey, my body just needs a little break right now. Or my ears can't handle this right now. I need to go for a walk. Or whatever it is, the kids can start empowering themselves. And then like you had mentioned too, we can also prepare kids for things like the, the fire alarm or things like that that are going to go off. Maybe, you know, that includes handing out headphones to kids who we know are going to be sensitive or letting them know, hey, we're going to be in the building for only two minutes. And then as soon as we get outside, it's not going to be noisy anymore. So why don't you be the first one in line when the fire alarm goes off? Whatever it is, there's so many options to help, to help us and teachers to be able to know how to support those kids through those preferences so they don't have to fight against it. And do you find that with so many more students with autism or other sensory issues in schools that I, I know that um, some schools have created like sensory walks. So if a kid really gets overwhelmed, they can go out in the hallway and 
they actually do all these different activities like push-ups or, you know, hopping or something like that to kind of help or just having quiet rooms or a beanbag to sit in, things like that, that work, you know, very well to help calm students who already are identified with sensory issues. But is there something that schools could just do or teachers could be aware of in terms of creating those environments in their classrooms or like even dimming lights, those kinds of things? Absolutely. And again, it's going to depend on the kids' sensory preferences. So having each teacher have this general understanding of how to see certain things, you know, if they see a a kid kind of squinting their eyes a lot, like that might be an indicator of poor vision, right? But it could also be an indicator of a child who has a really small um, visual cup. And so maybe dimming the lights would be a great thing. Or a kid who's covering their ears all the time. I think one of the things that's hard is that a lot of times the only kids who are being seen and supported in their sensory preferences are the ones who are on the extreme end who have the diagnosis. But because all of us have sensory preferences, all of us benefit from supporting those sensory preferences. So those sensory walks and the push-ups and all of those things that we think of as being for kids with sensory processing disorder, they can also help everybody else. So making things available to kids who don't have a diagnosis, like for example, in my kid's school, they have flexible seating for every single child in the classroom for most of the K through four classrooms. Now that's fantastic because everybody in there has a large-ish proprioceptive cup and proprioception is what helps us to feel more calm and more focused. And we get proprioceptive input when we're moving and it's, you know, you remember being in school and the teachers say, don't wiggle in your chair, don't tip your chair, don't, don't do all those things. You have to sit in your chair just still. But when kids are doing that, their proprioceptive cup is draining and they're losing focus. They're losing the ability to pay attention or to follow directions. So by having something as simple as flexible seating, kids are able to wiggle. They're able to keep that proprioceptive cup somewhat full, which helps them to continue to be able to focus. So my answer to that, that was a long answer, um, my answer to that would be making sensory activities available for all children. Brain breaks are a pretty big thing right now. Um, the reason is because movement can be very regulating and calming for a lot of kids with their sensory preferences. So any way you can access more movement is fantastic. Or like you were saying, you know, if you have a child with a small auditory cup, possibly put that child in the back of the classroom. So they don't have to hear all the things behind them. If you have a child with a small tactile cup who doesn't like to be touched unexpectedly, maybe put that child in the back of the line so they're not being constantly run into and pushed and whatever, but just being able to start seeing those things. Well, this may be a radical idea, but what about teachers who, when they're doing those, um, you know, enrollment forms, tell us something about yourself or your child, parent conferences. What about if they asked, you know, just does your child have any um, particular sensory issues or is there anything that, you know, makes them uncomfortable in terms of senses and gave some examples? Wouldn't it be great if people started asking that and could know kind of what to be aware of to prepare better for um, children in their classrooms? Laura, I love that idea. And like you said, it's like, it's a radical idea. It's so simple and something that could absolutely be done to help support all of those kids? Yes, absolutely, yes. One thing that I feel like is really important for everybody to know is that sometimes when people hear the word sensory, again, they, they put it in buckets and think, oh, that's only for kids with autism or only for kids with sensory processing disorder. 
in reality, like we've said before, we all have a sensory system. So understanding it is beneficial for us all. And I think there's also a stigma that only occupational therapists can address sensory preferences, or I need to be an occupational therapist to be able to understand a lot of these things, because people can make it really technical and really complicated. But the truth of the matter is, is that sensory is as simple as understanding the way that our body works. And it's just like understanding emotions. It might require a little bit more talking through things or addressing things in a different way or learning a different vocabulary. But once we do it, it just empowers us to be able to function better, to be able to work together better with our children. Well, and as you said, to even give them the words to use or the language to help describe what's happening. Yes. You know, we think of all these things that kids are learning in school, which are so important, right? You know, like history and social studies and all this, but we don't teach them some of the basic things that help them to thrive. And this is definitely one of the basic things. I think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and also the four functions of behavior. We know that escape, gain access to something, gain attention. And the fourth one is sensory. And I think so many people overlook that aspect of behavior and overall functioning in life. And, and again, that was a, a theory developed in 1967 that was for all humans, not just somebody with a diagnosis, but it truly does affect our emotions and our behavior and our actions on a daily basis. Let's bring it back to your child. What would you describe as like the biggest thing that changed for you in parenting your child once you were aware of all this? So one of my favorite authors is Alfie Cohn, and he says that he developed this process where he went from doing to his children to working with his children. And I would say that sums up exactly what happened for me. It was initially my son was freaking out over things that I just thought were silly or stupid or that I didn't understand. He would freak out if he wasn't outside. He always wanted to be naked. He was just super sensitive in his emotions. And it was either like he was super happy or he was freaked out, not happy. And everybody knew exactly what emotion he was having. Um, and he always wanted to be on his bike and all of these things. And he just didn't understand it. So I just thought, oh, my kid is such a spoiled brat and he is so difficult. At first it was like, he's going through the terrible twos and then it extended into the terrible threes. And I was constantly trying to either punish it or uh, fix it. Just constantly working against him, trying to teach him a lesson. And then I realized it was sensory and it wasn't that I started giving in to his meltdown, but I started seeing why they were happening. So then I became more proactive. And so when he started saying, hey, I want to go outside or I want to go ride my bike, I knew that was his way of saying my body needs to move. And instead of being like, I need to do some laundry, I can't do this, why are you always, you know, just getting irritated by it? I could understand the reason for it. And I'm not going to be the one who says that everything is rainbows and butterflies. I mean, he's still a very sensitive kid and he still wears his emotions on his shoulders, but it's so powerful to see him now. He's 10 years old and he'll say, mom, I'm really disappointed. He's got big crocodile tears in his eyes. And so then we work through that. Or mom, I'm just really frustrated. Or mom, I just want to go ride my bike. And so instead of acting out his emotions and me kind of fighting those or trying to fix them, now he's speaking his emotions and his sensory preferences, and together we're able to work through those most of the time. And so have you helped to educate his teachers about what works not only for him, but might also apply to other kids? Yeah, and that's kind of a funny story, too. So when he started kindergarten, I 
made the mistake of going into it saying, hey, my kid has sensory differences. Here's how to help him. Here's what he needs. Here's what it is. Well, the teacher didn't believe in sensory differences or challenges. And so it was constantly like a battle between she and I. So she'd call me in and she'd show me that he was chewing on all the crayons and he was never paying attention. He was ripping up papers and like, we just needed to get this kid under control. And my, my approach at the time was to try to teach her that what she needed to know about sensory. Halfway through the year, thankfully, (laughs) I maybe grew up a little bit, but I started feeling like that wasn't going anywhere. It wasn't helping my son. It wasn't helping her. So I went in one day and I said, here's what I want. I want to support you in the best way possible so that you can support my son in the best way possible. So I came about it at a different approach and it changed everything for she and I. And ever since then, I've approached it the same way. And so I'll tell my son's teachers from the beginning, here's how my son thrives. If he has these things or access to these things, he will thrive. Here's where he struggles. When you see him struggling, here's some things that help. So rather than just focusing on, hey, my kid has sensor differences, here's how you need to help him, I am telling him his strengths. He thrives when he has these things in place. And if you can't have those things in place, that's okay. You know, I'll help you as best as I can so that you can support my child. And that's been a much better approach. (laughs) And have you seen teachers take that knowledge and understanding and apply it to, you know, things that they see in their classroom or other children? Like, have you worked with teachers to kind of support their understanding of the fact that this is pretty, I would think, pretty typical? As you mentioned, we all have sensory preferences, so it's not like it's that unique, right? Right, right. You're absolutely right. I have not done a great job of educating the teachers on how to use the information that I'm giving them for other children. I really, this year, I'm actually starting to do more workshops and professional development in schools. And going to different schools and training their teacher on what sensory processing is and how it affects kids in school and things like that. But on a one-on-one basis, I have not done a very good job of that, but they, I definitely could. And that's probably something I should look forward to in the future. Yes. We're going to have another podcast call in a year and see what's happened. Yes. <laughs> it's just like anything. It's, you know, the more, the, the more we know, the better we can do. Absolutely. And teachers need all the help they can get, right? Absolutely. It's a tough job. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you so much. This has been really valuable. And and I hope it's just one more effort in terms of sharing this information for parents and educators. I love it when we have topics that really apply to both, because obviously, we're all engaged in supporting children. So um, the more we know, you know, the better we can support them, and the easier our lives all are. (laughs) Absolutely, 100%. I love the way that you said that, Laura. And I really do feel like just like you said before, it doesn't have to be rocket science and it doesn't have to be expensive. It can be really small and just starting at the level of just a basic understanding. And that alone can just do so much for all of us. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me on. This was awesome. Thanks for listening. Links to resources and social media for Wendy or guests on any episode can be found on the readinghorizons.com website by scrolling to the bottom of the page for podcast and then clicking on the episode. We hope you'll join us next time for a two-part episode on Closing the Achievement Gap with Drs. Julie Washington, Dr. Tyrone Howard, and staff from the Education Trust. Thank you for joining us for this episode of PodClast. Subscribe to PodClast to be notified when future episodes are available. To submit discussion topics or to recommend a student, parent, 
educator, or experts to be interviewed on future episodes, please send an email to podcast at readinghorizons.com. Podcast is brought to you by Reading Horizons, the creator of a structured literacy program for beginning readers, struggling readers, and English language learners of all ages. By combining data-driven software with teacher-led instruction, students receive a targeted reading support that leads to rapid improvement. Visit readinghorizons.com demo to see if Reading Horizons is right for your school. Reading Horizons, reading is for everyone.